which is Isaiah chapter 5, be starting at verse 11. Take a Bible and open up to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 11. If uh, you're using one of those pew Bibles, that's on page 679. 679, Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me start reading in verse 11. It says, What are those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine? They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flute and wine, flutes and wine. But they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. Therefore, My people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice and the Holy God will show Himself holy by His righteousness. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, on this Palm Sunday, as, as we attune our minds to think of Your sacrifice for us, Your resurrection, we, we just want to stop and tell You, Lord Jesus, that we love You, that we, we are so thankful that You have loved us first, that, that You died for us, that You love us, that even now, Lord Jesus, You're interceding for us. We thank You, Jesus Christ, that You committed Yourself to us with Your own blood. And so, Jesus, we just pray, be with us now. I, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as we gather this morning, sing these songs, study Your Word. Lord, we're all coming from different places, and I thank You, God, that You know where each person is this morning. You know what's going on in every life. You know what's happening in every household. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who is struggling, who is um, just in the midst of turmoil, relationships at home, uh, job insecurity, news of recent illness. Lord, all the things that can go wrong in our lives, and they, they tend to do that. Lord, I just pray comfort my brothers and sisters this morning. Let them know Your presence through, this, through Your Word. I pray that we would sense Your love this morning. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ, but... They're searching. They're investigating Christianity. They want to know more about it. God, I pray that You reveal Yourself to them this morning in a new way, that they might hear from the living God, not from any preacher, not from any church, but from the living God, that You, Lord Jesus, truly are the Son of God and that You truly did die for sinners. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would love You more, that we would follow You more. God, I pray that, that our religion would not simply be a Sunday devotion, that it wouldn't simply be a... Uh, a label we slap on ourselves as Christian, but that it might flow from the inner parts of our being. That as you said, Lord Jesus, you would put living waters within us. And we pray that the living waters of Christ would flow out of us, that we would be transformed from the inside out. We don't want to have any superficial, hypocritical religion. We want to be real Christians, living in the power of the risen Christ. And so, Lord, as we study your word this morning, we ask you to do all these things. We know that it's through your word and your Holy Spirit that you transform us. And so we pray, Lord, change us this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
Well, I was at the uh, gym on Wednesday, and this guy I know at the gym came up to me, and he said, so, have you seen the movie yet? And I knew exactly what he was talking about. You don't even have to say the title of the movie. You just have to say, well, I went and saw it this weekend. Everyone's like, oh, what would you think? Because you know, everyone knows what movie this is. For those of you who don't know the movie that I'm talking about, maybe, I don't know where you've been, Deep Space, deep space Mission to Pluto or something. Uh, there's this movie recently. It's called The Passion of the Christ, and it was uh, directed by uh, Mel Gibson. And this thing is just a cultural phenomenon. Uh, people come down all over different sides of this movie. Some people hail it as the greatest evangelistic opportunity in a, a decade. Other people on the far, other far extreme uh, revile it as, uh, you know, hate speech incarnate and everything in between. Uh, but regardless of what you think of the movie, you have to acknowledge the impact this thing has had and, and the way it's really just been right in the center of our culture for some time. I went on the, uh, the Internet this morning just to get the, recent, the latest box office numbers. <laughs> get this. As of, I think, Friday, uh, $322 million, which is just astounding, which is the highest... Um, in, it's an indie, an independent film, uh, which is independently produced, and that's the highest, of course, any independent film ever. It's the 12th highest grossing movie of all time. You know, stacked up even against you know Star Wars and Titanic and all those movies. So it, and it, it looks like it's even going to go higher. So, uh, you know, regardless of what you think of this movie, it, it's a whale, and it's made an enormous splash in in our culture. Um, different aspects of it. Perhaps the most notorious is its uh, graphic violence. Uh, that's probably the thing people most uh, mention is this uh, uh, hyper-realistic, grisly portrayal of Jesus' torture and crucifixion. In fact, when I went to see the movie, I, I kind of laughed, but I walked in the movie theater, I got my ticket, and there was a big sign there warning you about the graphic nature of this film. You know, like, as if <laughs> you know, nothing else that comes through the theater needs a warning sign. But anyway... Uh, I find that humorous. But yeah, it really is. It is if, you've, if you haven't seen it, it is a grisly movie. Uh, it's not for the, the faint of heart or the weak of stomach or anything like that. I mean, the, you know, it, it's all there. If, if you wondered what it was really like when they really crucified people in the first century A.D., that's what it's like as far as we can tell. I mean, the, the nails and the, the whippings and the kickings and the... The, the impaling and you know just all the horrible things they did and that's that's really what it was like. Um, in fact, I think Mel Gibson has said that he was trying to take viewers to the very edge of what they could tolerate, and I think he accomplished that uh, to the to the very limits of, of our endurance. But if you've seen the movie, I don't know how many of you have, but if you see the movie, eventually, you know the shock of just ugh, the whole thing kind of wears off, and you start to reflect on it. And you have to ask yourself a question among many. And I think one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, why did Christ endure all that? What does it mean? In other words, you have the bare fact of his sufferings, which is sort of where the, the, the emphasis of the movie is. But then you have to move to the interpretation of the fact. Why did he undergo that? What does it mean? What does it signify? Was it just, is he just some poor sucker who, you know, was at the wrong place at the wrong time? Is this some political statement he was making? Uh, was, was it just that the, the uh, political and religious authorities were threatened by his power and so they decided to do away with him? You know, what was it? Why did he undergo these sufferings? And as we look to the Bible, it's in the movie too, but of course we want to look at Scripture, not a movie for our interpretation of things. As we look to the Bible, 
what we find is an answer that's perhaps even more chilling than the sufferings themselves. In other words, when we look to the Scripture, we see that, yeah, Jesus' suffering and passion was very disturbing, but the reason, the ultimate reason behind it was even more disturbing. So why was Christ crucified? Why did He undergo those things? And when we look in the pages of the Bible, we find that the answer is He was undergoing the judgment and wrath of Almighty God. In fact, uh, take out your sermon notes for a minute, if you would. This little insert in your bulletin. Do you remember, at the very beginning of the movie, the movie starts out, Garden of Gethsemane. You know, I, I actually came a little bit late to the movie because I assumed there would be previews and stuff. There's no previews. It just starts, it's like, bam, you're into it. And, you know, there you are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Christ has those famous lines, May this cup be taken from me. In fact, if you look at your sermon notes, this insert, and look at the top, here's one of the places where he says it in the Gospels. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, his disciples, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. Now the question is, what is the cup? What obviously is a metaphor. So what is it? What's he talking about? He says, take this cup from me. And perhaps our immediate answer is, well, that's when he was, you know, that's the sufferings he was about to undergo. And I think that's about half true. I think there's, yeah, it's true, it's the sufferings, but it's something deeper too. I think he's making a reference to common biblical imagery. Because when we look into the Old Testament, and you have to understand the Old Testament to really appreciate the New Testament, so when you look into the Old Testament, what we find is that the cup is a common metaphor for the judgment of God against sin. Uh, I just put some examples there at the, on the second part of the sermon notes where it says, what is the cup? Here's some examples. Psalm 75.8 In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. So the cup is something for the wicked. Isaiah 51.7 gets a little more clear. Awake, awake, rise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You who have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. Or Jeremiah 49.12. This is what the Lord says. If those who do not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, why should you go unpunished? So drinking the cup is equal to being punished. Or look at Ezekiel 23. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. You will drink your sister's cup, a cup large and deep. It will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation. So the, this image, which is you know, found in the Old Testament, sort of a common biblical image, would have been a part of the, the language of Jesus in his culture. The idea is that God has this big cup of wine, right? This, you know, I'm trying to imagine some big chalice. And it's filled with wine, and that wine represents God's wrath and judgment against sin. And he finally reaches a point where he just gets sick of sin, and he grabs a person, or he grabs a nation, and kind of the image is like, you know, like feeding your kid medicine or something, squeezes their mouth open. I've never done that. But you, you, know, you squeeze their mouth open, and, and you're pouring it in, you know, like, and the person's like, and it's just the, the wrath of God being poured out. And then the person's drunk, but it's, it's 
you know, drunk in sort of a destructive sense. It, this is kind of this imagery of judgment. And so I think that when Jesus says, take this cup from me, he's not just sort of arbitrarily calling his sufferings a cup. But, but as a Jew steeped in Old Testament ways of thinking, who's constantly interpreting his life as the fulfillment of Old Testament teaching, throughout his teaching, he comes to this point and he says, take this cup from me. So in other words, I agree with John Stott, who wrote that, uh, that Christ was not really necessarily afraid of the physical pain. I mean, of course we would be to some extent. But you know, there's a lot of people who have undergone tremendous torture for their faith and martyrdom, and they faced it bravely. And, and Jesus, I mean, this guy was no wimp. This was a burly, tough guy. He was a carpenter. He was a man who stood up to a lot of flack throughout his ministry. This was no shrinking violet. So I, I don't think it's necessarily that Jesus was like, oh, I don't want to feel pain, even though, of course, who would? But, but I think it was more. It was He realized he was about to undergo not just human anger, but the judgment and wrath of Almighty God. And so he, oh, I mean, who would want to go through that? In fact, uh, fast forward, uh, if you've seen the movie, do you remember the scene when he's on the cross and he cries out, actually it's a quotation of Psalm 22, but he cries out in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's like, why did he say that? Is it just kind of, you know, venting his emotions? He's just, you know, trying to feel that he felt abandoned and and trying to say it, and he decides to quote Psalm 22. No, no, no. I mean, his whole, Jesus' whole life is just pregnant with theological meaning. And I think that was the the case there. What was happening, I think, as the sky turned black, which was a sign of God's judgment. We were saying about the wonderful, scandalous night. You know, when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't actually night, but it was his darkest night because the, the, the skies of judgment turned black, which was an image of the Old Testament of judgment is black skies. And here's Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me? And, and at that moment, God the Father, and I don't understand this. I've tried to figure this out, but I can't. Somehow God the Father turned His back on God the Son and poured out His indignation upon the Son. And that's what Jesus was afraid of. So why did Jesus die on the cross? Why the passion? Why all the horrible things we saw in that, that movie screen? And, you know, humanly speaking, yes, there was religious and political persecution against him and all these things. But behind it all, God was pouring out his judgment on Christ. So, like, what are we supposed to do with that? (laughs) That's a, yeah. You know, we're we're modern people. We don't like the idea of judgment. You know, I've said this before. I, I think the one sin you can commit in our world today is to judge anybody. And that's it. You can do whatever you want. You can live however you want. You can say whatever you want to anybody. Just don't judge anyone. Just don't hint that anyone might be wrong or that what they might be doing is wrong. But everything else is okay. And that's kind of the ethos of our culture. So to think about a God of judgment, you know, ooh, what are we supposed to do with that? Um, especially, I mean, just think about this. At the center of Christianity is the cross. Look, there it is. We've got it right on our wall. And, you know, we put it up there. We're like, oh, there's the cross. But... You know, if you were a first century person and you walked into a room and saw a big cross on the wall, you'd be like, oh, ooh, what do you have? Ooh, don't put that there. I think it's nasty. You know, they, and I think now that we've seen the movie, we've kind of been reminded of why the cross was such a symbol of shame and disgust in those days. It wasn't something you wear on your necklace. It was, ooh. And so at the center of Christianity is this horrible event, the cross, with a horrible interpretation behind it, the judgment of God. And so we have to kind of think about this in sort of in a fresh way. What are we doing? 
This is the religion that we're proposing is a religion based upon the horrible sufferings of the passion and the judgment of God being poured out. You know, is, what is that? How do you sell that religion? <laughs> it's just crazy. And uh, how do you go to a culture and talk about that? And, and I think today people uh, think that there must be a God, and most often what people say is that God must be love. That's the thing I hear. Yeah, if there's a God, I know that God is love. And so people hear that and they go, okay, so you're telling me at the center of the Christianity is a horrible cross with a horrible judgment behind it. And so where's the God of love in all that? Isn't love in the Bible too, Jeremy? I mean, doesn't God say in the book of Exodus to Moses, I am the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God? Where's the love in all of this? Well, what I want to do is, is think about this with you a little bit. Try to understand the concept of judgment and then hopefully tie it in with the concept of love as well. I want to look at our text in Isaiah chapter 5. And uh, maybe when we're reading this, you're kind of like, what is this text about? Uh, it's a judgment text. And so what I want to do is sort of lay this judgment text next to the judgment text, so to speak, of Jesus' suffering on the cross. And note the parallels. Uh, this is a judgment text. Specifically, scholars call this uh, thing a, a woe oracle or a woe prophecy. And woe oracles are pretty easy to spot. They usually start with the word woe. Uh, so, you know, even I can identify a woe. Oh, woe oracle. Uh, woe oracles tend to have two parts to them. The first part is an indictment of sin. And the second part of the woe oracle is a sentence of judgment. Does that make sense? So it's indictment of sin and a sentence of judgment. So verse 11 and 12 is the indictment. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine. Basically, it's a rave. And it says, uh, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. People just they do what they want. That's the problem. People are doing what they want. They're living how they want. They're, they have no respect for who God is or what God has done. So, verse 13 and 14, you have the sentence. So that's the indictment. Here's the sentence. Therefore, verse 13, my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore, the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So that's the judgment. It's pretty grim. Exile, suffering, death the grave. Then we get to verses 15 and 16 where I really want to focus your attention. What's interesting about verses 15 and 16 is they explain the logic of judgment. They explain the, they do the math for us. This is the, the uh, judgment equation. This is where you put all the things together. And you know, we look at this as modern people again and we say judgment doesn't make sense. How can God judge? How can a loving God send people to hell? You know, those kinds of questions. And then we get the, the logic here in verses 15 and 16. So um, let's just look at this real quick. It says, So man will be brought low and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice, and the Holy God will show Himself holy by His righteousness. So notice there's two parts to the equation. There's verse 15 and verse 16. Verse 15 is a statement about who we are, and verse 16 is a statement about who God is. 
And when you put the two together, who we are and who God is, and you put a plus sign between them, it equals judgment. That's how the logic of it works. So let me just walk through it. First of all, who we are, verse 15. It says, so, the man, so man will be brought low and mankind humbled in the eyes of the arrogant humbled. So basically who we are is we're the people from verse 12. Look at the second half of verse 12. It says, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. That's the fundamental issue of sin. Sin is me saying to God, you know, I, I, I don't really care. I mean, this is how I'm going to live my life. This is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to do. And, and you know, I, I just don't really have time to try to order my life by God's laws and God's ways. That's the essence of it. And in this case, uh, the, the author, Isaiah, gives the example of drunkenness and partying. But I think drunkenness and partying is just kind of one manifestation of this underlying attitude, which is the second half, half of verse 12. I mean, there's a lot of things. Even if you don't get drunk and don't party, you can still have this attitude and manifest itself in different ways. You can be self-sufficient. You can be arrogant. You can be uh, a workaholic, greedy, you know, whatever. We, we can do all these different things uh, to manifest this underlying attitude of like, hey, look, God, I'm going to do what I want. It's my life. This is my money, this is my friends, my time. I'm going to spend my life. I'm going to spend my everything the way I want to spend it. I'm going to live the way I want to live. And even if I do religion, I'm going to do it on my terms in a way that's convenient for me. And that's the thing is I think a lot of times people think, well, I'm, I'm religious, I go to church or whatever, but man, we're so manipulative. We, we even take religion and make it fit into our, our schedules. And we have just enough religion so that eh, we feel good about ourselves but not enough to, to be really convicted or to submit to God. And so, we're those people in verse 12. We have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of His hands. We're like the, the child who's been raised by a good parent. The parent has poured him or herself into that child, given the child everything, changed diapers, stayed up late, took him to the doctor, uh, you know, gave him the, uh, the braces to straighten their teeth out, loved them, spent time with them, took them on vacations, gave them a good education, sort of poured their whole life into this child, and the child then grows up and says, and totally ruins their life. And you think, oh my goodness, look, look what they did for you, and look what you did with it. And, ah, you know, that's who the human race is. God is the perfect father, and we are the perfectly reckless children. And so, no wonder there's judgment. No wonder we need to be humbled. I mean, that's the first part of the equation is, is the way we've gone with our lives as, as a race, all of us human beings, in different ways. We've disobeyed and walked away from God. In fact, the fact that we have a hard time believing in judgment, I think, reveals just how arrogant we've become. In other words, the fact that we go, oh, there can't really be a judgment. Oh, come on, there's no... You know, please... You know, God's not going to do that. The fact that I even think that way just shows how arrogant I've become in my attitude. It's kind of like if a person was totally inebriated, falling down drunk, literally, and they fell down, boom, and they get up and they've got like a big gash on their head that needs stitches and it's bleeding, and they've got a big gash on their arm. And you're like, you okay? And the guy's like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm not hurt. I don't feel a thing. I must be fine. You know? It's like, no, you're not fine. You're just drunk. That's why you don't feel it. And, and I think that's how it is with, with judgment. We, we're like, oh, uh, there's no judgment. I, I, mean, I feel like a good person. I feel fine. There must be nothing wrong with me. Therefore, I must be okay and there must be no judgment. It's like, no, I'm just intoxicated with myself. 
That's what it is. We've become intoxicated with sin. And so we don't feel the flames of hell. We don't, we don't think about that there is a holy God, that there is a law that we have, have broached and breached. And so that's why we don't believe in judgment today. It's not because it's not there. It's just because we're intoxicated with ourselves and with sin. Which leads to the second half of the equation. All right, so, so if it was just that, there wouldn't be judgment. You have to have the second half of the equation too, which is God. And you have to have a specific type of God, which is a holy God. Look at verse 16. It says, But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by His justice, and the holy God will show Himself holy by His righteousness. If we are rebellious people, then who is God? God is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. There's no one like God. God alone is great. God alone is worthy. If you were to do a you know, a Google search for everything that's wonderful in the universe to find the most wonderful thing, your Google search would come up with one answer. God. And relative to God, nothing is great. Only God is great. Only God is wonderful. He is so awesome and worthy and beautiful. And I mean, you can't even make a complete list of the adjectives that describe how wonderful He is. That's who our God is. And to sum it all up, the Bible uses the word holy that He alone is great and awesome and worthy. He's such a great God. And, and what have I done? I've totally blown Him off. I've totally gone the opposite direction. And so it says at the second half of verse 16, the holy God will show Himself holy by His righteousness. Here's the logic of judgment. Do you see it? Do you see the logic? The holy God will show Himself holy by means of, through His righteousness or justice, or you put in the word judgment too. In other words, the way that God proves that He really is a holy God is by judging sin. That the way God shows that He really is worthy and awesome and righteous and all that stuff is by stepping in to punish evil doing and rebellion against Him. The way God shows that He really does value His glory and His greatness above all else is by coming after that which would detract from His glory and greatness. That's how He proves it. Or, let's put it negatively, uh, if God didn't judge, what kind of God would that be? If God didn't judge, He wouldn't be worthy of being the holy God. If God looked at everything in the world that's awful, there's a lot of it, if God just looked at my life, which is bad enough, if God looked at all the, the betrayals, the lies the sinful thoughts I've had, greed, anger, violent thoughts, lustful thoughts, arrogant thoughts, if God has looked at all the things I've ever said, if God has looked at all the things I ever did, all the things that went on in my soul, and just looked at that, now multiply that over all humanity, and God were to look at that all and go, well, let's not worry about it. (laughs) What kind of God is that? That would be like a teacher who had a classroom that was totally out of control, kids cheating, hitting each other, hurting each other, and just kind of ignored it all and went to her you know, uh, desk and studied or something. No, no, no. A good teacher will step in and, and bring justice and righteousness. It would be like a judge in a courtroom, and, and criminal after criminal is brought in for, for trial, and, and case after case, the criminal is proved beyond a shadow of a doubt to be in the wrong, and the judge just keeps pardoning, pardoning, pardoning. No, no, just let him go. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Let, you know, let it slide. Like, what kind of judge would that be? And so God demonstrates His holiness. God demonstrates His justice and His righteousness by judging. So now put it together. Um, us, 
unholy, sinful, rebellious. Even when we try to be religious, it's so self-serving and so self-created. Holy God, who hates evil and sin, put that together equals judgment. There's no other way. It's what it has to be. So, that is why Christ died. Because it was the judgment of God being poured out. Judgment does make sense. I was uh, reading this little book. It was actually really, it was good. Called, uh, How Can a God of Love Send People to Hell? Really simple, clear book. I thought it was really well done. If That's sort of a question you've wrestled with. And one of the things this author, uh, John Benton, talks about is he says that this question, that's the title of his book, is a framed question that frames the thing in a certain way. In other words, it says, how can a God of love send people to hell? And he's like, no, 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 wrong question. The question is, how can a God of love send sinful people who are rebellious against God to hell? And you frame the question that way, and it's like, well, <laughs> it sort of answers itself. You almost don't have to write a book anymore. And that's why he writes the book, is to explain that there's no need for the book. Anyway, <laughs> you get the point. So, you know, so there it is. That's the logic of judgment. That's why God judges because He is holy and worthy. And because we do deserve it. And, and so you put that together and you have the judgment, you have the cross, you have suffering. And you say, okay, okay, I get it. Yeah, all right, I understand the logic of judgment. But still, something's missing, Jeremy. Where's the love? I mean, there's got to be... I know love is in the Bible. I've read about it. You know, God in the Old Testament is the God of love. First John chapter 4 says, literally, God is love. So where's the love? Didn't Jesus talk about loving your neighbor? Where's the love in all this? Is, is Christianity all just doom and gloom and fire and judgment? I mean, where is it? And the answer is, well, it's right there. It's in the cross. Or put it another way, love is right in the title of the movie. It's, what's the title of the movie? The Passion. No. The title of the movie is The Passion of the Christ. Whereas the title of the movie should have been The Passion of Jeremy Rennie. The title of the movie should have been The Passion of Rick Goodenough. The title of the movie should have been The Passion of Put Your Own Name in the Blank. That's who the title of the movie should have been. That was my cross. The judgment should have been poured out on me. And yet it was poured out on Christ? It doesn't make sense what's going on here? And it's that God loves us. And He sent His own Son to die instead of us, which is such an astounding thing. So when we talk about the love of God, we're not talking about some mamby-pamby thing. I think when people talk about God's love today, even in churches, it's really this watered-down, politically correct, group-huggy, 60s folk-songy kind of, you know... You're okay, and I'm okay, and we all love each other, and we're just going to love, and you know, nothing's wrong. We're not going not gonna to look. Everyone's okay. Everyone's fine. We, we love each other. You know, it's just kind of like airy, fluffy, empty, sort of, uh, you know, marshmallow fluff sort of love. And, man, that's not the love of the Bible. The love of the Bible is strong, and it is sacrificial, and it is powerful. It's the kind of love that does not deny sin and righteousness and judgment. Yes, God is holy. Sin is evil. Hell is real. And some of you may be going there. It's a real place. Judgment is coming. But, in spite of that, God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, 
to die for hell-bound sinners, to take my place. So that was my cross. That was my crown of thorns. He grabbed onto my nails and held onto them. He took my beating. And all of my sin, all the junk in my life that I would be so humiliated if you knew about me, He took all that and just put it on Jesus. Jesus took that. And then Jesus gave me His righteousness. So that when God looks at me, He doesn't see the wayward person that I am. He looks at me and He sees a beloved Son whom He loves. And I'm like, what? A beloved Son? You're my beloved Son, God says to me. I'm, me? What did I ever do? You didn't do anything, Jeremy. Christ did it. He died for sinners. This is the great news of the cross. And so you've got to hold on to both. You've got to put them together. And the cross is the perfect intersection of holiness and, and love. Right there at the cross, these two things that you think are totally opposite, they meet. A God of love dies for rebellious sinners. It's like so mind-boggling. There's this wonderful scene in the movie, if you've, if you've seen it. I, I think it's probably one of the most poignant scenes in the movie where Jesus is going down the Via Della Rosa and Mary wants to see him and she kind of runs ahead to find him and, and there he is and he sort of falls down under the weight of the cross and Mary sees him and, and she, uh, she kind of has this flashback to when he was a little boy and the little boy falls down and she, this whole maternal instinct thing just wells up and there's like her little boy falling down and this, you know, she just like snaps back into mom mode and then she doesn't care if she's going to get in trouble or not because she's a mom, here's her boy falling down and she runs over to him and she kneels down by him and you, you know, it's almost like she's there to help him but then he looks at her and he says, Behold, Mother, I make all things new. And that, that line, it just floored me in the theater. I was like, I make all things new. That's why Jesus went to the cross, to make me new. To, to make me a new life, a new person. So that I might be born again. That I might be saved. And I just want to tell you, that's what Christ offers to you this morning. Is a new life forgiveness of sins, freedom from hell. Christ wants to take your hell and exchange it for heaven. Christ wants to take your sin and exchange it for His righteousness. Christ wants to take your rejection and exchange it for His acceptance as a beloved child of God. That's what Christ offers. You can't get it by trying to be a good person. You can't get it by being religious. As long as I sit here and say, well, you know, God, I mean, I am okay after all. No, 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 no. We'll never get there. All we can do is hold on to the cross of Christ and let God change us from the inside out. Are you, a, are you born again? Have you been saved? I'm not saying have you gone to church. I'm saying have you grabbed onto Christ and allowed His Holy Spirit to change your life so that you become a new person? It's the greatest thing in the world. And, and Christ holds out His arms to embrace us. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I thank You for Your love for a, a, a ruined vessel like myself and for so many of us. Lord, we, we could just spend the rest of this morning with person after person coming up here telling stories of how we have walked our own way and have fallen away and, and that You, Jesus, got a hold of us and we've become a new creation. We've been born again. We've become a, lived a new life. And so, Jesus, I pray that, that You might continue that work. Lord, I pray for any Christians here that that they might just come back to the cross, that we might come back to the cross and, and not really move from it. 
but just stay at that fountain of life where we might be filled up with your love and your transforming power. Lord, as we struggle against sin in our lives, help us to just keep coming back to the cross and remembering that we are righteous in Christ. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ. Maybe they've been thinking, looking into it. Lord Jesus, make Yourself real to them. Show them Your beauty. Show them the beauty of Your, your death, if that's possible. That they might love You too. That Lord, some here might be born again and live a new life in Christ and have their sins forgiven and become a child of God. Lord, we love You. Help us to walk in Your ways. Help us to be faithful. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think we have a special uh, special treat. I think we have a choir that's going to be coming out. Unless they forgot to set their clocks ahead. <laughs> okay then. Um, <laughs> Uh, hey, John, would you lead us in that song, Child of God, again? Do you, you know, we probably even need the words. I think we, we sort of know it. Uh, and if you don't, just listen, and uh, John will sing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I was just thinking, it's, it's such a great song. And uh, let's, let's stand and just sing that song. It's such a perfect song about what Christ has done for us on the cross. laid down crucified your arms stretched out and open wide to rescue me so I can be a child of God from nail pierced hands to thorn pierced brow your blood flows down to me somehow it cleanses me so I can be a child of God After the service, our prayer team is here. Uh, Barbara is here, and uh, we'd love to pray with you. Hey, why don't you guys come over here so everyone can see you? So just stand over here. And uh, uh, I put Rick Goodenough on the spot before. Hey, Rick, would you come up here and close the service in prayer? Since everything's random here at the end of the service. The choir is here? Oh, the choir is here. Please be seated. <laughs> We are a well-oiled machine. All right.
Would you stand? And Rick, would you come and close the service in prayer? Would you stand, please? Thanks, Rick. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you humbly, bowing, uh, asking that uh, you live in our hearts. And Father, we just thank you for this message this morning that uh, reminds us of our lowly state, but that you see us as pure through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. We give you praise and, and thanks for saving us and being our God. We ask that you bless us now in your care and keeping, Jesus.